This is a becoming creature, and I'm here with Prince Vogelfree, and he's been walking around the Smoky Mountains for, I think, more than a month now. Uh, he took off from after visiting me for a little while, and he has returned. So uh, we had a lot of really good conversations in that time, and it gave me some thoughts about um, how we could share that with other people. And I would like to first ask him, because I don't really completely understand, like, what was your main motivation for going into the mountains of Georgia and getting a, a pack of everything that you're going to live with for the next month and and exploring nature? And it, that must have some kind of personal discovery nature to it, right? Like, tell me about that. Yeah. First, I should clarify that I wasn't backpacking for the whole month. At least half of my trip, I was in Asheville with Vadra Vibe, Ugh. eating nice Asheville donuts. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. There's everything on my... I have a thread on it, so you can read all of the true details. I don't want to overstate my accomplishment. <laughs> but I did walk for like 100 miles. That's nice. Yeah, that's right. Like, continuously. Um, and personal discovery was definitely part of the motivation i've sort of gotten away from specific motivations to a degree and like i just feel right. called to doing it and i think right. that itself was kind of part of the motivation it's like wanting to live life in a way where you could just be called to like go here or go over there stop in a particular location for as long as you wanted to right just go with the wind so so it's almost like a pursuit of the present moment kind of putting yourself in a meditative state for a long period of time um where you're you're surrounded by nature and everything that's very natural to a man it, it, especially like having a path right so um so before um prince vocal free <laughs> can i call you by your name i like preserving the romantic mystique for yeah, what the lady is on twitter you know? perfecto but Right. So when I um, left Prince last, he uh, I left him at a train station, and this was my idea. But <laughs> I think he he then like followed the train tracks for the majority of his hike. Yeah, I mean, rarely used train tracks are basically just a path that you get to follow. It's just a really long trail, right? Yeah. Right, so I thought it was perfect, especially because you're not like on the side of roads or anything. Yeah. But so from that experience, did you encounter anything? Discover anything about yourself? Was it was it kind of just a struggle? Like, mm. tell me. I mean, should the, I do it? The main yes, everyone should do it. All right. Everybody should do it. If you're listening to this, like, go on Amazon and buy the nice like REI pack. Get trekking poles. Because trekking poles make walking so much easier. Yeah. They're amazing. But the main thing I learned, I think, is something to the effect of misery is simple. And joy is also simple. Tell me about that. Start with, start with misery. But what do you mean by misery is simple? Like, what do you mean by simple here? So when I was, like, you know, in the city, I feel like I kept relating to ways I was miserable in a very complex way. It's like you try and find little things to like solve all of your problems. Mm. You try to get everything to like work like very nicely, like low friction, right? Right. 
But when you've committed to, you know, walking like 15 miles in a day, you can't remove that friction. That friction right. is just there and you have to handle it. Mm-hmm. And it's like something goes wrong, you just have to handle it. Like right. My trekking poles broke and I'm like, I just have to handle this problem. Like this nice thing that reduced friction is now just gone. And I'm like, right. I can't get a new trekking pole. And I think it's very common, at least for me, I, I'm, I'm then like thinking about the problem. I'm like, my trekking pole is broken. Like that's such a thing. <laughs> and that's a useful behavior if you have a way of solving the problem. If you can go to the store and get a new trekking pole. Right. But it's not a useful behavior if you don't have a way of handling the problem. Yeah. And so at some point I was like, oh, I can just not think about these things. (laughs) Like you can be miserable and not think about it. And I think that's what people learn in a lot of different institutions that are trying to change people. So a military or a monastery. So in like a hardcore like Buddhist monastery, you're going to like sit there and like mosquitoes are going to be landing on you and shit. And you're going to be not moving for hours. And so you're not going to want to think about the mosquitoes right at some point right. you're just going to learn to sit there and handle it and you're going to be kind of miserable but that will also be part of you know becoming and overcoming the wheel of suffering and that's <laughs> right. also going to be true for someone who's in the military and they're on you know like i was they're carrying 40 pounds of gear or more and right. they're going up a mountain and some asshole is yelling at them and i'm sure people they're all up in their heads for right. like a lot of people for the first period of that for like a couple weeks or whatever and eventually they're going to stop being in their heads, which is great because then you get to do something else in your head or, or not anything at all. It's like great to have that internal voice just go away and just be miserable. It is so much better to be miserable in a simple way than to be miserable in a like complex way. So it sounds like the key to dealing with misery is by not interpreting it in the kind of noisy like everywhere scattered way that most people typically do such as they're blaming the the driver next to them they're they're blaming their car they're blaming everything around them but rather the the fact that misery is simple is you kind of just interpret it as oh oh misery is just this one thing and instead of dealing with the hundred problems in my life I can actually just focus on dealing with misery. Would you say that's true? Yeah. And then because you're not like emotionally invested or like because you're handling the problem simply, you create space and other solutions uh, occur. So it's like my trekking pole is broken, but now I can think about my gate, right? I can pay attention to my gate and I have that mental space to be thinking about like how I'm actually like physically walking over the terrain because I'm not like all like hunched up in my head being like, my trekking (laughs) pole is broken. Now my hike is ruined. It's like, no, like just do something else. Like, you know, uh, make your trekking pole like work for you, which is what I did. Um, and like, you know, start singing. And so that's a segue into joy being simple. Right. So I, love music but when i was young i like would sing spontaneously oh i mean when i was real young when i was like five Mm. i would like just sing spontaneously and at some point i got crap for it right and i was traumatized into not doing it anymore (laughs) and so like my musical talent was squashed and that was terrible i mean i think it might have been like the worst thing that ever happened to me very traumatic and so 
I've always been worried, you know, I felt that worry from when I was young. But in the woods, there's nobody to tell you that you don't belong or you don't get to sing. And even right. if there is, you have this mojo, which is that you're some guy who's walking, who's been walking for 50 miles. Yeah. And that makes it easier to be like, fuck you. Right. <laughs> and so you just get a stroll down the trail, like right. belting your heart out. Right, right, right. And that's the joy is simple. And, and like, it's not a coincidence that also these institutions that I mentioned, it's like the military and the monastery, like singing or communal activity. Because right. I think once you learn that misery is simple, you also have this flip side to it, which is you're like, oh, yeah, like I set up my tent like perfectly. And like last night, it wasn't so good. It was like a little slack. I set it up in the wrong location. So there was like um, dew on the inside of the tent. There was condensation. But this time oh. I got it right. And now I have this new power of like knowing where to <laughs> set up my tent. So everything is perfect. And I'm like comfortable. Or even like just getting to go to sleep is so much more pleasant after you've been i mean what what i one day i hiked like 20 miles yeah wow and then i was that was a great night of sleep it was wow. fantastic and then you know after i got into Asheville, i got to sleep on a mattress and that was fantastic i'm like if you if you haven't you know spent a week not sleeping on a mattress and like being <laughs> kind of uncomfortable right you haven't actually slept on the mattress. You've slept on, like, your illusion of the mattress. Like, you failed to... F I think most people, they just... Like, I mean, I'll at least speak for myself. I was not appreciating mattresses. And now, <laughs> going forward, my life is permanently better on just this one dimension. This is a, this is a perfect segue for our... <laughs> Our sponsor, Casper Mattresses. No, that's that's not actually true. You can buy whatever mattress you want. But but you should sponsor Vecna if you happen to be listening to this. No, well, we'll get into that later. But uh, we're, we're answering phones in the background right now. Actually, we got companies calling in. But there were a lot of dimensions like this. Yeah. I'm like, I'm actually, like, food permanently tastes better. Like, fresh food. Yeah. Um, it, and there's there's all sorts of areas where I think this is true. So this yeah. isn't something I learned on the hike, but but previously, you know, fasting and I did keto in the past. Yeah, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't mention that I'm doing keto right now. And as a uh, podcaster should be, I <laughs> I can tell you that uh, the idea of certain foods really gets me randy. So. Yeah, that's that's something I'm looking forward to. I I've, I've already got a list in my head, very long, very long list of the way I'm going to celebrate when I get off this freaking train, man. Anyway, so, so I, I've done a bunch of like 24 hour fasts, yeah, and a a smaller number of like 48 hour fasts. Uh -huh. And because I had that ability, it was easy to just like not really eat on the hike mm -hmm. all that much, um, yeah. which was convenient because I only had all of these trail bars that. You were giving me, <laughs> and they were fine. But you know, it wasn't like I wanted to eat four of them in a day. <laughs> right, right, right. I got, um, I got you. But because of this fasting experience, it was easy. Just be like my stomach is empty, and that's fine. That is a simple misery that I'm going to accept. Right. But then you also get this joy, which is that. So you know, I wasn't in the middle of the wilderness. I was like, you know, I was in the woods most of the time, or walking yeah. past farms. But I would get into these nice little small Georgian towns every once in a while mm. where all of the buildings are brick. They're all really nice, cute, little artsy towns. And then I would, like, go to the cafe and get on Twitter 
<laughs> and drink a latte and eat like a you know a meal i was wondering how you were doing that i'm like he's a, he's a always on <laughs> I was trying to get away from the city, not from Twitter. <laughs> Twitter is the best thing in the world. Why would you oh. want to get away from it? Well, well, I agree with you. <laughs> I agree with you. Um, but yeah, and that was that was a really nice experience. No, to yeah, eat that... these eat these fancy meals after you've been on the trail for two days. Yeah, that that's awesome, and that really gets to the way we often try to overfeed ourselves with everything that we like like we we tend to think that we're gardening our lives by feeding ourselves the things we want all the time but i think it's often the case really that we have too much abundance and what we need to do is to want a very few number of things at a time and then change what those few things are so i'll give you an example I love to cook, but I only make a special meal every once in a while because it makes it so much more vibrant. But that's also the true for like that's also true for whiskey and so many things that I enjoy that I try to rotate such that I'm not like consuming everything I want to be consuming all of the time. So the for the past like week and a half, I've been eating string cheese and rotisserie chicken, and I wish rice and beans. That's the point I'm at. And it just makes it so much more exciting to experience those things that I truly love. But let's move on and uh, tell me about like when you really started getting interested in philosophy and like thinking about the deep topics of life and uh and in the world so i was raised thinking about theology basically Mm -hmm. my dad was a pastor and i have this really early memory of um, my dad talking to my oldest brother about like the spatial nature of god and god fitting into boxes if you want to do like this kind of thing sure Um, but I also like this very like Protestant idea that like you get to interpret the scriptures. Did you have a denomination? We were EV free. It was, so it was conservative, like evangelical, but not associated with like a particular denomination beyond that. Sure. Sure. Um, and so there was this idea that you, you know, interpreted the scriptures, you read the scriptures yourself. And that was like. A source of, of power or like doing the right thing with your life so i would i would i tried like really hard to understand the bible when i was a kid i would like go to like the adult sunday school class <laughs> and i would try and be smart about it and i was smart about it yeah um, but that was also a formative experience of like yeah. seeing adults interact with i taught that class <laughs> <laughs> um but then that sort of over time that turned into these like harder and harder questions that the adults like stopped being able to answer in a convincing mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So I started to wonder about like the perspective of other faiths and I was like, okay, so what's going on with the other faiths is that they're being <laughs> deceived by a demon and that's where their religious experiences are coming from. But yeah. then I all I have to like figure out if that's true for myself and I also like started delving into this questioning because my family was conservative and I was in this, you know, evangelical and Republican environment. Yeah. And I started realizing that these ideas do not fit together very well 
at all. <laughs> I've heard a lot of people attempt to justify it, and I've just never, I'm like, no, like, Jesus is telling the Jews to cooperate with their oppressors, the Romans, very directly. That's not a very American gun-toting freedom desiring like ethos at all yeah yeah um and i really believe that those things do do clash to a very strong degree so i I would ask people these questions about like when do you get to rebel against your government like when do you stop rendering under caesar's what is caesar's yeah um and i started having two things started really feeding into this crisis of faith one was that i really really loved the founding fathers they were sure. just the coolest thing ever. Oh, yeah. They are the coolest thing ever. They're still the coolest thing ever. And they're fucking nuts. They clashed like with like my image of what a good Christian should be like. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, they, you know, they slept with a lot of women, yeah, <laughs> Benjamin they, Franklin in particular, were, but also the others. Yeah, they were deists. Um, <laughs> they were deists. They were, again, they were embodying the Roman spirit of virtu it's like they're protecting their own right they're fighting for their liberty and they for were their almost rights. like roman i mean they were trying to be roman yeah they like looked at rome and they were like that shit is awesome we're gonna do that yeah. again and put latin on our motto and the roman eagle and the you know the roman pillars that are all over dc roman law the republic i mean they were very consciously yeah. trying to embody no, it was spirit. there's there's a lot to delve in here so you were in this religion this uh evangelical religion and what happened next like what changed so i was sitting there i was 14 or so uh, into 15 and i was obsessing about the goodness of the founding fathers in relation to the Bible. And then I also started studying biology, and in particular, evolution. And Mm. I, like Vecton, was raised to believe in the full and literal truth of Scripture. Yeah. Seven-day creation, the whole bit. Um, Oh, yeah. And I started to realize evolution was true, sort of simultaneous to being convicted in my spirit that the Founding Fathers were good and in clash with a literal interpretation of the biblical scriptures so there was this convergence of this epistemic crisis with this moral crisis of i just like could not find it in my heart to say that the founding fathers were bad or that they were fully in tune with like with scripture like i couldn't affirm either of those things very interesting approach to this (laughs) yeah yeah i mean i just like found these two things were happening convergently and they both pointed in the same direction so eventually i read this book childhood's end which i think is by arthur c clark and the book involves the existential fate of all of humanity and a way that doesn't really reference god and i realized that night finishing reading that book that that was what i was ultimately concerned about more so than what i conceived of as god at the time Mm. and that and particularly there's this moment in the book which is not really a spoiler. So in the book, this is the plot setting for the book. Aliens show up and they're going to like uplift the human race like over time. They're going to like improve very kind their, of them. their c- cultural opinions. And one of the things that happens that where they're trying to, you know, help the humans understand what is really going on is they give them this device that lets them look backwards in time. So it's like you want to look at what Jesus was doing in weird 30 bc uh you know 30 ad or whatever sure and you can do that and i ran the simulation in my mind of like 
given what I'd been thinking about, do I really expect that if I had that machine in front of me, would I see Jesus do actual miracles? And at the time, I was like, no, I wouldn't Ah, really expect that. Interesting. And so that opened the floodgates. And when I say opened the floodgates, I mean, I had, like, my belief system collapse that Yeah, you started looking at everything differently. Very, very much so. Um, I... Jordan Peterson talks about how your your ideology falls apart and you're like dropped into the darkness of chaos yeah. and people are afraid of being dropped into the darkness of chaos and this is why they push back so much when you give them information that contradicts your ideology because it's terrifying and I'm here to bring the first hand report it's like yeah it's terrifying every part of my life was like I planned on it going through the church it was like mm. romantic future it's like marry a girl who's like part of the church and have kids <laughs> career future it was like either become a pastor or a missionary or do politics all of which would which would have routed through like church connections basically yeah. you know family future it was like the whole thing there was no part of my life that was independent from church i was homeschooled so it wasn't even like there was like this wow. other school thing i could do it was just everything in my social life had always been routed through the church and my plans for the future. And then there was nothing. And the, it, it, it actually, it felt like being dropped into a dark abyss. And when yeah. I say felt like, I mean, I was practically catatonic in my bed. There was like a hole there. Yeah. Crying and having internal visions of my idea of God, which I don't think is accurate these days, but my idea of God being sacrificed on the altar of truth and it was like as he was sacrificed i was having an actual visual visual hallucination of there being like blue flames coming out of the sacrifice holy cow and then i got up from this state after a few hours it must have been like 2 a.m or something yeah and i walked around these like tall kentucky trees and they were all covered in this beautiful faint blue light that was the light of the discoverability of truth because I did feel empowered on this one particular dimension. Your deconversion was way more symbolic than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Which is that I had figured out like a deep existential truth about the universe, which was the reality of evolution. I had Mm. done it on my own, essentially, like no one had pointed it out to me. So I was like, I don't have almost anything else. I have two things. I have this idea of virtu, of being a man in this great classical sense that the founding fathers embodied. And yeah. you have the sense that you yourself can discover the truth. And then that sense became a permanent part of my like phenomenology um, I, where I could just see it in the trees. I would like look at the tree and be like, yeah. you are part of the truth and I can like figure this out. I'll briefly share my experience because my experience was very similar that, um, my deconversion began somewhat simultaneously with my uh, learning about evolution, which I, I was really never exposed to outside of um, kind of claims that it was insane. But after I learned a lot more about it and the hip bones and whales and the history of, of mankind in, in the fossil structure and um, all those kinds of things, I began to have questions and I also a, a big crack in in what I would call my faith was the discovery that so many things that I called the soul had a very direct 
chemical explanation of epinephrine and serotonin and oxytocin and all these different neurotransmitters that were producing my experience and that we were able to tie memories to certain specific areas of the brain and the the physicality with which I was able to describe my experience kind of, it, it just slowly eroded my image of what God was kind of for in my life. And I can tell you that the moment for me, I was sitting in church, I remember, and people were telling testimonials uh, of what God had done in their life. And it, it was like, oh, well, you know, I got over this disease. My doctor told me it should take three months and it only took two months. And another person was like, I got a promotion. And another person was like, I had cancer and now it's in remission. And suddenly out of out of nowhere, it was like somebody spoke to me and it was just like, people are not saved by God. They're saved by their faith. That these people, they, they're probably better off for believing in God, but it's not God that's doing any of the saving. It's it's the, the faith itself. It's the, the belief. It's the optimism. And as soon as that idea struck me, kind of everything faded away from my eyes. And I was able to see that that one explanation, that anything that I could attribute to God's power was actually due to people's belief in God, that I was that structure of the world was so clear, but there was also this hole, this void, because suddenly I was no longer immortal. Like in that moment, I was like, oh shit, I'm going to die. Like the, the existential crisis came crashing in on me like a wave, and I, I became angry and it was so difficult for me to kind of try to square like what life had been for my entire life versus the way life must for as as I saw it must be and so that was a great struggle for me and it took me years to kind of get to the other side where now I look to um, Christianity and I, I have to say that I see it more like um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn or, or Jordan Peterson and um, but you have to look at like the deeper meaning of the things that inform us in our life and I, I kind of find it warming and, and invigorating the fact that like those years of my life when I was a child were not wasted. But now I can look back at the scripture and I can look back at that and say all of that communicated something that was important to me about mankind. Yeah, I had this experience right after my deconversion where I was like, well, I guess I'll go check out what the atheists think and their communities and just like immediately realizing that they didn't have whatever it was that the church had. And then also yeah. realizing that even what the church had was something in decay that you could tell that what the church had, even, you know, 300 years ago, never mind in its early, the early history of its formation, that, um, that that was something in decay. And then that was something that, that nobody had, that they were all in this state of being atomized from each other. 
and not having any kind of real community. And I'm like very grateful that I grew up with that and also very much have warmed back to the scriptures and be like, yeah, I learned a lot about psychology, about faith, about everything important from right. that. And a it's lot of wild. people just don't have that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Peterson is absolutely right about one thing. And it's like the, these things last for a reason. Yeah. People don't retell stories arbitrarily. Lindy as fuck. But so tell me a little bit about so you have like all all these ideas. You and I have discussed so many things. We we've discussed um what what's his name? He's the lingerous singer Singapore. I think it's Power Bottom Dad One. Wait, you mean Lee Kuan Yew? Yes. Yeah. 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 We've talked about Lee Lee Kuan Yew. We've talked about right. Deleuze, Cars, Nietzsche, Nietzsche. Just name drop everyone. We've, We're we've, very smart. We've met, we've mentioned Nietzsche a few times, and I'm curious of like, what utility do you find in in your pursuit of philosophy and all of these topics, and what do you think that you know that let's say the average person? I I know this sounds kind of onanistic, <laughs> but. What do you think you know or, or that you've discovered that most people don't know? Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. That you think is useful or, or that's helped you in your own life? I think I feel like I should take this back in a very different direction given that we just talked about my deconversion. Mm-hmm. I'll say that the most useful thing that I came back to was uh, God. Oh, yeah. And coming back to believing in God. Wow. Tell me about that. What is? What do you mean? Yeah. Well, so when I deconverted, I had this very specific thought in my mind, which was maybe God is kind of playing hide and seek with himself or with me. That the idea was that maybe this was a partial image of God. Sure. And it was removing this thing that was partial. And I didn't know about Gnosticism or anything at the time, um, but that there was this partial idea of God and that I would be introduced later to to this other idea of God, because one of the things was that was in my mind was I really wanted to be sure that I could get out of any false belief system. That if I was being deceived by some kind of demon, I could like find the scent of truth and follow it and come back to believing what was true and what was right. So as soon as I deconverted, I was like, I have to know how to get back to believing in, in God, if that's true and part of this story that is occurring. So I had that very specific thought. And that's important because uh, a friend of mine, uh, he was a Sikh friend of mine, and we were talking about Nietzsche, and he was introducing this idea that Nietzsche was a cryptodeist. I, of course, if you've read many of my tweets, know that I absolutely adore Nietzsche. Um, and he also suggested after, he suggested that I read this Indian philosopher, Sri Aurobindo. And then at some point in a book of Sri Aurobindo's aphorisms, he had that line point almost really point for point. He's like, atheism is God playing hide and seek with himself. Uh, and there, there were a number of things that went into me kind of finding God again. Well, so uh, I think part of it was, you know, just kind of continuously grappling with this problem of like, how do you get to the truth and what do things bottom out in? Because one of my favorite descriptions of God is that God is the ground of all being. Yeah. He's the ground of existence itself. One idea I've been toying around with in my mind is that you have this idea of 
axioms and your belief system body bottoming out in axioms and there's another idea which is that your belief system rather than in axioms can body out something in more like stances so in a relation to the truth in a particular disposition to the truth and you could imagine that both of those things are perfectly unified and that whatever that axiom or whatever that stance would be would be god another really major philosophical factor was that I introduced, I, I encountered, I found out about this idea of the unity of the good through Aristotle. So Aristotle's yeah. idea of the unity of the good is that you have all of these different qualities which are desirable. You have courage and beauty and uh, wisdom and patience. And his idea is, is that these can all go together perfectly. So the most courageous person in the world can also be the most patient person in the world. And even further, Aristotle has this really crazy idea that if you perfectly embody courage or any virtue, that you will also embody all of the other virtues at the same time. Yeah. So the idea is if you were perfectly courageous, it's like your mind would not flinch away from having to be patient right. anywhere. So you would simply be patient as the and that, result of that. That dovetails with Buddhism, which is that if you embody any of the individual buddhist virtues perfectly you embody them all so it's the same exact idea which yeah. is so crazy to me that people across the world discover the same ideas like that's why i think philosophy is like globally important and like it's getting at something true about humanity that we're, we're kind of working this backwards and um that's kind of like why i'm trying to get at the question of what we find useful and what we find valuable in our own experiences because I feel like if I find one thing that I can execute in my life that really improves it, say 10%, then there's got to be some huge number of people out there that actually have not even tried that out yet. And... Um, like I can say for myself, like a few of the things that are creating incredible value is um, meditation. Like nobody, I, I feel like pretty much nobody ever wants to meditate, but it's super valuable. Like if I don't meditate, my whole life is worth. And practicing acceptance and forgiveness and these kind of vague ideas of um, just approaching the world from a certain kind of frame so i know you do a lot of like work in this area like uh you you had that fret that thread about um like princely work what would you say you you practice on the regular that you think everybody should or, or, or that you think is is really deeply valuable for you yeah the first thing i'll say is that when it comes to introspection and figuring out your own internal psychology the number one thing to do is to listening to focusing the audiobook by eugene genlin mm. that's just the best introduction to introspection that exists yeah, i read it yeah. it's only like an hour and a half long you have no excuse not to listen to it yeah it's also really like doing the focusing is really fun <laughs> like i don't know why yeah, it's, it's like great. a game it's like a game but it's 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 a game where you can kind of discover the answers to your life <laughs> it's really cool you should do it i mean yeah. i'm hearing in some number of listeners right now that there's hesitation 
remove the hesitation just do it all right now that we've yeah. shilled for that book enough <laughs> the other thing i will say is um prayer so yeah. meditation is great people talk about meditation i've had some hesitancy with prayer like i i i feel i i yeah. agree that prayer is good but there i think the i think the deconversion to me has has really made like i just have this block like it's difficult for me to ask the universe for things well, it's know? probably because you don't want to submit yourself to the will of an all-powerful god or something you, like yeah that. you're probably right yeah yeah i mean i think that so love can be really scary to uh -huh. tie this in a little True. with uh, the other episode that's about to drop somewhere mm. go on love can be scary you're like am i going to be swept away by this thing am i going to be hurt by this thing and so this idea that god is love and is perfect love also means that he should be much much scarier than the idea of you know being as in love with any woman or man you've ever been in love with yeah that there's this current of love and of fate and of perfection that can sweep you away entirely and you have all of your ideas of who you are you have all of these things that you don't want to be swept away because you're holding on to them mm. and then prayer will expose you to all of that simultaneously so there's this idea that is also in this other uh, this idea of, of idol worship, of paying attention to something that you're kind of using as a substitute for something else that's actually better. Yeah. And the way I think about this is that God is the ground of all being. God is the whole. He's the totality. <laughs> Period. A little punctuation from the dog there. <laughs> and if God is the totality, then you have this problem. I mean, you have this problem no matter what your worldview is, which is that if you only pay attention to the part mm -hmm. and you need to be paying attention to the whole if you confuse the part with the whole you're going to destroy yourself you're going to miss the point of what is going on so to take a partial context you have pornography and then you have actual romance pornography is a yeah. pornography is this image it's like a part of the thing a hollow part of the thing and you you confuse them or you want to substitute one with the other and then you blow that idea up to the grandest possible scale where it's like you have only one thing that is truly whole only one thing that is truly one you know the number one absolute quality top of the chain right there's one thing that is the totality it is the beginning and the end of all things right and if you confuse anything else with that, you're just going to become more and more confused about oh, the world of the absolutely. time. Absolutely, you can idolize a true god by putting your idea of what God is or should be. So it's hubris and it's idolatry in order to let's say the Christian God is real to say I have. A perfect understanding of what the Christian God is that's idolatry that's all idolatry and people often idolize them themselves in this way by trusting their own intuition too much or trusting their own ideas too much by in every moment saying I know the way the world is and and fighting along those lines it's that to me is idolatry so for me the um the religious way or the christian way or really what, what i would say is the not confused way the correct way is the approach where you just say you know 
I don't know the way any of this is. I'm just going to navigate it to the best of my ability. And because I don't know, I'm willing to hear you out to see what you think so that I can improve my own opinion. But I'm just traveling through this world doing the best I can. Like for me, that's humility. But the hubris is saying, you know, I actually know exactly what you're saying and it's wrong and here's my take. And I feel like that is the poison hmm. that you encounter on Twitter. It's the, it's the poison that you encounter in the world. And it's uh, the poison that gave me a distaste for evangelicals because evangelicals in my time told me this is the way the world is and my immediate response would always be like who do you think you are yeah yeah i mean i do worry about the opposite failure mode so on my twitter bio it says that i'm searching for the deepest possible conviction and that is true and i think there's something admirable about fanatics in general in that i think it is a a harder way to go through life yeah and sometimes a more honest way to go through life to say like i do know what is going on and here it is and i I think there's a real danger of a fanaticism of humility where you're like oh well i don't know Where, where i think twitter is a good example of like where you in order to be i think truly good at twitter you need to say stuff yeah you need to make claims and engage and like your tweets aren't going to be as good if you put all of these modifiers on them. You should say what you think you know you believe. Yeah, I think we're we're almost an hour without mentioning Eigen. But the, what I think is, is funny about <laughs> Eigen Robot is that he, like, preaches this whole kind of um, no, like, no takes, not taking any serious positions half of the time. And then the other half of the time, he's like... This is fucking bullshit. I don't fucking stand for this shit. This is nonsense. You know, like block this person. <laughs> like, there's there's that total schism, and I I think that that's correct. Like I I think he's correct to do that. I don't think it's hypocritical at all, because I think that a person needs to come from the basis of humility, being like I don't know what I'm talking about. Like that that's got that has to be where you start, but you also need to develop some kind of a stance and because if you don't have a stance there can be no justice there can be no beauty there can be no art like if you don't have taste and you don't develop a thing and if you can definitely be over humble so the point is to find not a a middle ground but some kind of um balance where where you interact with the world in a way that is creative yeah you can't be a coward about what you believe otherwise what you believe isn't really interacting with the world so i believe this one weird thing which might be a little hard to explain sure but i think that you shouldn't have the belief that you don't know what is happening or what is going on so i think that skepticism like true intellectual like honesty is actually something the human mind does automatically a lot of people will tell you that you're like, you know, you're you're full of all of these inherent self-deceiving tendencies, you're biased, like, etc., etc. I think all of that is layers built around the actual truth-pursuing function of the human mind. Yeah. That you're sort of by default rawly in contact with reality. 
And I think that the actual right way of like being skeptical isn't try to force this belief on yourself that like, I don't know what is going on, but to actually just live out what you believe to, to be convicted, to become who you already are in a sense. Yeah. And then a lot of people, the, the real danger is that through false humility or through arrogance or through all kinds of things that they've built up layers between their actual belief system and the world. And it's like the layers are what will kill you. I've, I've thought about this. Like we, we want to insulate ourselves from life because it gives us a little bit of um, sp- like space or tranquility or breathing room. But I've also questioned whether, you know, the dangers of dissociation and how like those those two things are, are kind of in tension. And it seems like the solution is to collapse the insulation to the degree that things are always in play. And so you need to keep enough room and enough separation for the dance, right? So if you're in a dance, you if you're too close to everybody else, you don't have the freedom of movement. You don't have the freedom to improvise but also if you're in a lonely room it's not really much of a dance if you're not doing it with other people so it's about finding that perfect balance and i i think that's really where a lot of the beauty comes into play is where we're interacting with others and i think um things are at their best when everything is a collaboration i do very much agree but mm-hmm. one thing I would stress whenever we're talking about anything that is dynamic, yeah, you can move a long ways away and still be collaborating. Uh-huh. So I think there's this sense in which, particularly in Western civilization and talking about Western philosophers, that solitude is part of the dance. That you can actually move further away from society in order to gain clarity about it, in order to not experience its pressures to you know go for a really, really long walk in order to be able to bring something back, in order to have those moments of clarity or those moments of reprieve that you develop as a philosopher. Mm. So I've read a lot about martial arts in the context of Zen, and I've practiced a fair amount of martial arts. Jiu-Jitsu is pretty fascinating in that context. And there's like this thing of like, you know, it's like you don't want to be stuck in a mentality of moving just forward. You don't want to be stuck in a mentality of just moving backwards. And if you practice with people or you pay attention to yourself, you'll see that in combat you're stuck in these different mentalities. It's like you always flinch when the sword is approaching rather than, say, just blocking, just moving out of the way, doing something truly straightforward. You have all of these complex ways of relating to the misery and to the joy of combat or to just practicing the combat well, right? Yeah. Um that are stopping you from being truly dynamic. But when people are truly dynamic in dance, as well as as in in anything else, they can get very far away without the interaction really ending. And they can get really close without feeling like their freedom of movement is constrained. And for me, this ties in with what I talked about earlier of Mm -hmm. the unity of the good, because if you're truly as dynamic as possible, then you can embody these different extremes of behavior, of emotion, of reality, where you're not you're not just stuck in the middle. It's like you can be as angry as you need to be. You can be as in love as you need to be. And I think people's uh, I think that the layers in people's minds stops them from 
embodying those extremes that would otherwise come to them naturally. I think you are describing the kind of negotiation and the improvisation that we need to practice in life in in a really beautiful way and because there's an expression of beauty in our movements and it is through that expression that we really cultivate love and meaning and i think that's that's probably a the perfect place to end there because most important point is how we travel through the world so thank you prince vogelfree for this wonderful conversation okay <laughs> all, all right that's that's the that's the, Maybe we shouldn't actually edit that. I feel like I should tie it in. With thanks, thanks for thanks for joining us tonight, uh, and I hope everyone has a good one. Oh no! This this has been a becoming creature. This is uh, Nick and Prince Vogelfree. I had a lot of fun recording this first episode. It's been quite the learning experience. You can find my wonderful guest Prince on Twitter at Prince Vogel V O G E L. You can always find me on Twitter at Becoming Critter, C-R-I-T-T-E-R. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to send me a message and tell me how I'm doing. If you're interested in future episodes, you can subscribe to my Substack, becomingcreature.substack.com, where you'll also find some show notes and comments about this episode. Thank you for listening.